Turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. We are drawing to a conclusion uh, this morning our series that we've been in the last number of weeks uh, in the book of Titus. And so I just invite you uh, to go ahead and find your place there. Uh, Titus chapter 3. We're going to stand here in just a moment and uh, read the passage together. Titus Titus chapter 3. Well, I know that uh, at funerals, there is often uh, many songs that get sung at funerals. And I know as a pastor, I have the privilege of uh, officiating uh, funerals from time to time. And um, often there's some really repeated songs that uh, find their way uh, to be sung, and um, especially at Christian funerals. And, uh, but when you, when you look at the um, list as a whole and consider the songs that are sung at many funerals, actually one of the most popular songs that sometimes gets sung is uh, that old Frank Sinatra song that says, And now the end is here, so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it. I did it. What was it? My way. And sadly, that has become a song (laughs) that is the epitome of the American way of life. Um, Our country is, uh, you don't have to to be told this, you know this, uh, but but America's built on something different than many countries. Um, We're built on independence. Uh, We're built on rebellion. Uh, We we founded the country in the middle of an uprising, right? Uh, and, 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 And so there is this sense in which the American way of life, the ideal of being an American... Uh, things that, 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 that really resonate with us are, are, are themes sometimes where there is this very self-reliant uh, independence. Uh, we, we think about people like uh, John Wayne and Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone, and we think about people that pioneered the West, and there's, just this, there's this sense of this American way of life that's just this stark uh, individualism that uh, is going to charge ahead regardless of of uh, who's there, what's there, the opposition. But you know what? That's very countercultural to the New Testament. It's actually extremely countercultural to the New Testament Christianity that says that the Christian life is not independent, but it is dependent. And it is dependent both on God and His body, that there is this relationship with one another. And so this morning, as we uh, reach the very end of our study here in the book of Titus, uh, we've been considering the portrait of a healthy church. And, and we've reminded ourselves over the last number of weeks that this letter was given to Titus, but it was really given for the churches there in Crete. And by inspiration of God, it was given to uh, it is for each one of us, and it's, it's for us as a church. It's for Kataba today. It's in our Bible so that we might uh, learn what God would say to us through it. But the thrust of the message of the book of Titus is really what a healthy church looks like. And so as we kind of draw to conclusion this morning, 
I want to remind you just for those of you who haven't been with us through the series, I want want to remind you of of the thrust of what Paul is telling Titus. The the letter really kind of follows the pattern of most letters in the ancient world in that it begins with an introduction, it ends with a conclusion, and, and in it there's this aim of what Paul is wanting Titus to do. He's He's wanting Titus to establish healthy churches. And, and really, Titus is not going to be the pastor of all these churches, but he is to appoint leaders. And so really, the chapters, there's just three chapters to the book, but they really kind of give us the structure of the book. And in chapter one, we considered how Titus is to appoint godly leaders. And then in chapter two, it is those leaders and the congregation that are to become a godly people. And that, notice in chapter three, he ends the letter by reminding them of God's transforming grace. It's, it's what we've sung about this morning, that the gospel and the grace of God has the power for salvation, unto salvation, and it, it is grace that transforms us in our daily life. And why? why? What is the purpose of all of this? It's so that the church might be a place and a people who are full of good deeds. We, we see that actually coming into focus this morning uh, in two verses that we're going to be looking at, verse 8 and verse 14. If you have your Bible, just glance down with me at chapter 3. Notice verse 8, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then he says it again in verse 14. Um, he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And so I hope you see as we kind of end the letter this morning, all of the focus of what Paul has been telling Titus about appointing godly leaders, about, about raising up uh, people that, that, that love the Lord and reminding them to live their life in a certain way, All of that has the aim so that the church might be a place full of good works. And this morning, we're going to consider that as we read from verse 8 through verse 15. So would you stand with me this morning? And we're going to conclude uh, Paul's letter to Titus. We're going to pick up right where Dylan left off last week. So appreciate him filling the pulpit for us last week. Verse 8, notice how, how Paul describes this. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what's the word good works and these things are excellent and profitable for people but avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. And when I send Artemis and Tentacus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to what? Good works so as to help in cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word that gives us life. We thank you, Lord, this morning that you have modeled for us, Lord, in Paul and in his life and his ministry team, 
God, what it looks like to be a faithful co-laborer in the gospel. And Lord, as we're here this morning, help us to remember who we are. Uh, help us to remember what you've called us to. And God, help us to be faithful. I pray that we'd be faithful in our service to you. And all these things we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. You can be seated. I'm so glad this morning we could have a privilege to peer into another part around the world and see what God is doing uh, down south. And, 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 and a number of months ago, I was uh, privileged to, uh, along with some on our missions committee, uh, to sit down with another one of our mission uh, partners who is in Southeast Asia. And it was interesting to me talking to him and just hearing his passion for the gospel and hearing how he was saved out of a Muslim context and how his whole outlook on life has been gospel driven and, and his heart is for his people to come to know Christ. And, and, and as we just had this conversation, he, he just said, you know, pastor, it's so different here in the United States. Because here, everybody's so concerned about titles, they're concerned about positions, they're concerned about how things look. He says, but you know what? There's a word in the New Testament that encompasses everybody, and it's not just pastors, missionaries, church planters. It's the word laborer. Turn to your neighbor and say laborer. Laborer. That's a word that Jesus used, didn't he? Jesus says, look out because the fields are white for harvest. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out what? Laborers. You see, when, 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 we, when we work together, when we, when we look at the New Testament and we see the letters of Paul, we discover that Paul talked about fellow laborers. He talked about fellow laborers in the gospel. And here's the reality this morning. You came into church, and you may not be in vocational ministry. You may not uh, be, you know, in that. But we are all ministers. And we are all laborers. And, and there's something that's really unifying in that language. Because when we talk about, and not that it's wrong, but when we talk about, you know, the distinction between clergy and lady or all these things, sometimes in our culture, especially in the United States, there's this, there's this, uh, I don't even know how to describe it other than this, this difference of uh, somehow like those are second-class Christians. They're, 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 they're doing something that I'm not. They're, they're, they're somehow more faithful to God than I can be. And my friend, that's further from the truth because the Bible says that all of us are laborers together in God's field, in God's house. And so when we come to the end of this passage, maybe you there, as Paul gives us the conclusion, at first glance, you're looking at this weird list of unknown names and obscure references. You're, you're, like in our passage, if you look down in your Bible, he's talking about Artemis and Tentacus and Nicopolis and Zenus and Apollos. And some of us in our Bible study, as we come to places like that, we have a tendency just to jump over it. We're like, that, I don't even know what Nicopolis is. I don't, it's something I don't know. And, and, and so some of us have this tendency, we just jump over truths like this. However, I'm excited about it this morning that we're going to have a message from Paul's conclusion. And Paul is going to talk about what it means to be a faithful co-laborer in the ministry. And he's not just telling us what it looks like. He's modeling what it looks like. Paul modeled this in his life with other co-laborers. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to know what God requires of our life, but it's a far better thing to see it modeled sometimes in the life of another. 
How, how many of you are thankful for dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are a little further along in their journey, but they brought you along and helped disciple, mentor, show you something in the faith? Can I see your hand? How many of you are thankful for that? And, and, and is it sometimes we, we look at the Bible and we see what God's calling us to and we say, man, how in the world can I do that? How in the world can I live that? But then, but then, then you come across these seasoned saints that are just modeling it so well, what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. I know I saw Jenny Painter this morning here, and instantly I just reminded of your grandma again this morning, and I, I think about her life, and I'm telling you, Miss Marion Thompson, she stood about four foot seven. I mean, she was the shortest lady I've ever met, but she, was the, she had the largest faith of any person I've ever met. And, and, and I go by to visit her, encourage her, and she's sitting here encouraging me. And she's teaching me things about faith and teaching me things about trusting God. I'll never forget one day I called her on the phone and, and I just literally was just calling to encourage her. And, and she like, she had this sensitivity of knowing like something was wrong without knowing there was something wrong. How many of you know, you've ever talked to someone like that? And she just, I don't remember even how she asked it, but she just said, what's going on? And I just, <laughs> she said, I'm gonna pray for you. And I mean, she prayed a prayer of faith that, I mean, I need it. I tell you, there's something about seeing faith modeled in the life of another person that helps us realize, no, 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 no. I, I, I certainly um, have much to grow in in my Christian walk. But isn't it encouraging that there are those that God has in front of us that we can, that, that, that model to us uh, what it looks like to be a faithful co-laborer in the gospel. In this passage, Paul is recognizing and expressing his need for others. In this passage, we're giving a glimpse into the inner workings of his ministry team. And this morning, I want us to just consider a few elements of what it means to be a co-laborer in gospel ministry. And let me tell you this morning, if you're a born-again child of God, you are a co-laborer in gospel ministry. And so if, if you're born again, you, you've come in this room this morning and you say, Pastor, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then listen up. Because these three things that we're going to consider this morning are elements that should be in every one of our life. They're things that should frame our life and, and, and they're things that should frame our ministry and our ministry teams here at Catawba. The first is this. What do we discover in this passage? We see that being co-laborers in gospel ministry, first, it involves fellowship. It involves fellowship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stressed this in one of his best-known books. He summarized the Christian life by saying, it is life together. It is life together that, that you and I have come to know God in Christ Jesus and through that, his family. And because of this, we experience this deep, common life together. We experience what the Bible calls community. Just turn to your neighbor and tell him community. It's community. It's community. What, what is it about community? Well, we see in the book of Acts that the early church held everything in common. Not some things, everything. What, what, what is the picture for us? It's showing us that they had this shared common life together. And what I find so interesting is that we fast forward from the book of Acts three decades later as Paul's writing this letter to Titus and we see that the emphasis of that community is still continuing. Because notice how he describes it there in verse 15. He says, all who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. You see, what, what, what Paul is showing us is that he is in this way expressing a deep love and personal affection. And, 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 and he's sharing, the, the, these are some individuals that mean so much to Paul. 
because they are fellow workers. There's this common fellowship in the ministry. And that shouldn't surprise us because the gospel is to be lived out in a community. God's saving grace in our life individually and personally should propel us into a relationship with one another. You see, it is in being reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that ushers us into this new family. And there's this now new family dynamic to those of us who have been reconciled. We didn't do that to one another. God did that for us, amen? So in being reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of His Son, He has reconciled us now to one another. And the Bible says the Spirit of God adopts us into his family. And it is in that family, my friends, that you and I experience some of the deepest and most profound things in life. We get to experience some of the deepest love and kindness and grace and compassion within a family like this. I mean, just look around the room. We're quite an odd bunch this morning. Really, apart from the gospel, you think we all would have gotten together over something? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, we're diverse. We got different interests. We got different passions. So what brought us here? What brought us here? Jesus. He's reconciled us to God, and he's reconciled us to one another. And in the family of God, you and I, my friend, experience some of the greatest things. There's great diversity in the body of Christ. You say, well, I'm looking around the room and I'm not sure I see a lot of diversity this morning. Well, that's just because we're one little local church in this greater world of diversity. I'll never forget going to Uganda and stepping off the plane and making a four-hour drive to Jinja and, and meeting some of the staff of Mission Link International for the first time. And I'm telling you what, it was like kindred brothers meeting. I, I hadn't met these people. I didn't know them from Adam, right? But, but there is this, this depth of relationship. Why did that? Why, why is it? Because in Christ we're one. And there's this unity in the gospel that although there is this great diversity, we find um, this unbelievable unity and how is that? It's because we've been reconciled to God. And in that, we're reconciled to one another. Hear me closely this morning. In this room, because God has reconciled us to himself, he's reconciled us to one another. And so because of that, there should be this embodiment and proclamation in our life of a greater mission. You and I are not dependent from one another. Our culture would say that. Our society beats the drum to a different tune. But the Bible says no man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. But you know, there's a great enemy working against the church. Do you know that? There's a great adversary working against the church. And our flesh works against it. And this world system works against it. And, and, and it's constantly trying to deceive us. All the time. Uh, the devil, our flesh, this world, they, they, they constantly try to say things. They lie to us and deceive us that somehow, somehow we can save ourselves by our own efforts. That, that, that somehow we can thrive in independence without being in community. And I'm just telling you, that is not at all what the message of the New Testament is about. You see, our society today beats the drum to a different tune. They, they beat the drum to, to Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. 
There's this individualism and this isolation. But you know, here's the problem with that. In that, there is this, this, this suspicion and hesitancy. There, there begins to be this idea that somehow we're seeking to protect ourselves and our own self-interest. And our society always sets up things in a way that we're in competition with one another. I mean, isn't that the American dream? Just be a little further ahead along than someone else? Isn't there competition in this world? Not in the body of Christ. We're a family. That's contrary to the Christian life. God uses the analogy of a body. And the picture of the body is that collectively we are all members in Christ and he's the head. So as long as we're all following the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ, his body is unified. But the minute that you and I begin to step outside of the leadership of God's spirit and our, our self begins to be elevated and, and in pride, we begin to say, no, I know better than what God knows. Then we begin to cause problems and, 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 and dissension and conflict. And, and notice what is the Bible saying? The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. The Bible says, hey, even those weaker members in the body are indispensable. So, so here's the thing. There should not be this competition with one another in the body of Christ. There is this unity in what God has made. And there's a great blessing that comes in the unification of Christ's body. Because you and I begin to experience this depth of relationship. It's the word the Bible uses, fellowship. It's not talking about a church potluck. It's talking about that there's a, there's, a, there's a thing in our life that is far deeply rooted than that, and that is that, that you and I are sinners who've been reconciled to a holy God. And together, neither one of us deserve to be in the family. But by His grace, He adopted us in the And when there's an openness and a transparency in our life between us and the Father, then there's a transparency in our life between us and one another. And that's what John says in 1 John, right? He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's grace there, amen? Can I just tell you, church, Catawba family, the unity of this church just didn't happen. Unity never just happens. It's cultivated. It's cultivated. It's hard work. It's love enduring with one another, grace being extended to one another. It's, it's forgiveness being shown to one another. So what did we learn about Paul in this closing? Well, we learned that there was this deep fellowship with these co-laborers. Secondly, notice Paul says being a co-laborer in the gospel also requires faithfulness. Faithfulness. You know, I often think about this. And maybe it's just me. Maybe you can relate to this. How many of you have words to describe somebody else? Like when you think about friends or family, like if you had to summarize them in one sentence, you would, you would have a way of describing a person. And, and I often wonder, what do people say about me, Right? Like, like, we all do that, don't we? We all describe people to other people, but like, I, you know, we're always blinded to what people say about us. 
right? But here, Paul in this passage is describing some co-laborers. He's going to describe who they are, what they do, what they're remembered by. Actually, you look at the New Testament letters and what you discover is that there are many places where Paul talks about a person and he gives them a description. And I wonder if anybody ever read it and was like, what? I mean, come on, how do you describe your friends? Better yet, how would they describe you? And what if it were to be pinned down in a letter for all time? Well, it's good because Paul actually had a lot of good things to say about his companions. There were some people that Paul didn't think much of, and that's also in the New Testament letters. Come on, if, if Paul had to give you a nickname, Paul had to describe, what would he say? Well, look, I want us to look down in this passage. I want us to see the faithfulness of his companions. Notice Artemis. Artemis. Who is this guy? Someone tell me. Who is he? Yeah, your response is my response. I don't know. Actually, no one knows. I look at the commentaries. There's nothing about him. All we know is that Paul talked about him as a fellow worker, as a co-laborer. That's all we know. Tentacus. Who's Tentacus? Paul calls him in another place a dear brother and a faithful servant of the Lord. We meet him in Acts 20, and he's a part of Paul's multi-ethnic mission team. And, and he's with Paul in one of his first Roman imprisonments. He's the guy, Tentacus is the guy that carried the letter to Ephesus. And other places. Zenus. Who's Zenus? What does the Bible tell us about Zenus? What is he? He's a lawyer. What, what, what else do we know about that? Well, not much. And that's really all the Bible tells us. He, he was either a, a lawyer in like a Roman law context, or maybe he was a Jewish lawyer. We're not really told. The only thing I know is that he's using his vocation for the sake of the gospel. He's a lawyer, and he's still doing gospel work. And then we have Apollos. Now, we know a lot about Apollos. He's a, a, an eloquent evangelist. He was mighty in the scriptures. But Paul had good things to say about all four of those guys. You say, wait, what about Nicopolis? That's a place, okay? But, but Paul, had, Paul, Paul, Paul had good things to say about all four of those guys. They were fellow workers, fellow laborers in his ministry. But you know what? These aren't the only people in the New Testament that we read about having this companion work with the Apostle Paul. You know, you know some of us grew up in church and we heard about Paul the missionary. We're like, wow. I mean, that guy's just, he's just like John Wayne of the Bible. You know, he's just charging out. He's solo. He's going, doing whatever. But, but that's not at all how Paul did his ministry. Is if you read the end of every one of his letters, he's talking about his ministry teams. He's talking about people who traveled with him, fellow companions. Those people were equally as vital to the mission. Equally as vital as the Apostle Paul. So notice, what do we discover about this. These aren't the only individuals. There's others. Let me just give you a few of them. If you, if you were to look at places like Romans 16 or others, you'll come to places where in the Bible where Paul talks about Timothy. Who was Timothy? He was a faithful spiritual son. What about Barnabas? He's called the faithful son of encouragement. Silas, he's a fellow missionary and a faithful brother, and he's part of Paul's gospel prison choir. Amen? What else do we know about these guys? Aristarchus, he was a fellow sufferer and a fellow prisoner. Epaphras, the Bible calls him a faithful prayer warrior. And then there's Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul says in Romans 16, those people stuck out their neck for his life. 
And you can go through Romans 16 and you can read about others. Why? Because Paul's talking about these are friends, these are companions, these are fellow co-laborers. So what do we discover? What is the Bible teaching us here? Notice, to be a co-laborer in gospel ministry, there is fellowship. But then secondly, there is faithfulness. Nearly every time Paul talks about a fellow worker, he uses a word before it and he describes them as faithful. A faithful son, a faithful missionary, a faithful prayer warrior, a faithful encourager. What's the lesson we learn in all of this? Paul's ministry would not have ever been as fruitful if it was apart from some faithful co-labors. And that's a good message. I mean, that's, that's a helpful message. When we come to a passage like this, and some of us have that tendency to compare ourselves, and we're like, well, I'll never be an Apostle Paul. So could God use my life? I mean, I am nowhere near the boldness of Paul. Can, can I be used of God? Yeah, my friend. Look at this list. These no-named, uh, not nameless, but, 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 but we don't know anything else about their work. And that's good news. You know why? Because, because in just a few years, no one's going to remember your name. And no one's going to remember what you did. Uh, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, right? I, I, think, about, I think about what... Um, with John Wesley, he put it this way, God buries his workmen and continues his work. I mean, just think back over the last 2,000 years since Christ came, there's been a lot of workmen that have been buried and God's gospel's message is still going forward. So what does that mean? I mean, it's actually, it actually, you're like, wait, wait, pastor, are you saying that like in 100 years, no one's gonna remember me? Yeah, probably so. Unless you're on some ancestry.com website, you know, and they're gonna, they're going to see your name. You say, that's really depressing. I came to church this morning to, to be told that in 100 years, it's not really going to matter. No one's going to remember me. Uh-uh. It's the opposite. Isn't that inspiring to us? Because you know what that means? It means that I'm not laboring for you. And I hope you're not laboring for me. Because as a Christian, God's called us to a greater mission. And I'm not here for your allegiance and you shouldn't be here for mine. We're not here to please one another. We're here to please the one who has enlisted us. So what about Artemis? What about Zenos? Who are these people? I don't know. But you know who does know? God knows. He doesn't forget anything. Why is that? So that all praise goes to Him? Not me. Not you. So that one day, people would look back at, at what God's done in these days, in these years, at Catawba Valley Baptist, and not attribute it to any pastor, not attribute it to any person on a committee, not attribute it to any ministry, but that the glory of it would go to God and say that He's done that here. So there is a 
fellowship that comes in Christ, there is this faithfulness that God calls every one of us to. God calls you to be faithful. He calls me to be faithful. And it's easy to compare ourselves to other people because other people's standards of us can be lower or higher. And it makes us easier to reach a standard. If someone has a low standard of us and we meet it, we're like, I did it. But God's standard is faithfulness. One day we're all going to stand before God and give an answer for how faithful we were as a fellow worker in his field, in his building. But you know the last thing that it requires for ministry, the last thing it requires for us to function as a ministry team and a ministry family, you know what that is? It's forgiveness. Just look at some characters that Paul talks about in his letters. Onesimus. How does Paul describe Onesimus in the book of Philemon? He calls him a forgiven sinner. Onesimus was a runaway slave, found himself in Rome. He meets up with the apostle Paul. He gets converted. Paul sends him back to Colossae, which just happened to be his hometown, with a letter to the church after he got saved. And the letter, Paul's saying, hey, he's one of you now. And then Paul gave him a letter of his former master, of who he had run away from. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul urged Philemon to welcome back this runaway slave, not only as a slave, but now as a brother. He was called the forgiven. Or we could look at someone like John Mark. John Mark needed not only forgiveness, he needed reconciliation. The Bible says he turned away and he wasn't faithful. What happened? Well, we can look at the Bible and see there was this sharp disagreement among the ministry team over what would happen. And and it was so much so that it created this break in their fellowship. The team split up and went in opposite ways. You remember Barnabas took John Mark and went, and then Paul took Silas and went. And there was this disagreement, the sharp disagreement that led to this division of a ministry team, but God ended up using that What's the lesson in that? Who was right? Paul right? Barnabas right? Who was right? I mean, people to this day still debate who was right. Came across this in a commentary I was reading this week. Even the best of men are men at best. I don't know. Was it Paul's fault? Maybe. Was it Barnabas' fault? Maybe. But man, their work's in progress like like the rest of us, right? They needed God's grace. And you know what? God did give His grace there. Because at the end of Paul's life, he told Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. That, my friend, is the reconciliation of the gospel. That's the work of the gospel. That's the grace of God at work. You see, being a church, even being a healthy church, doesn't mean that division and interpersonal conflict will not happen. What the Bible is saying is that the gospel is the power of God to heal and mend those rifts. I believe that with all my heart. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel has the power to heal. 
So in a situation like John Mark, someone had to extend humility. Somebody had to extend forgiveness. And some of us in this room, we need to learn to forgive. Why? Because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven me. You yourself have been forgiven. And we all need God's forgiveness. Some of us are holding a grudge. But you can't hold a grudge if you forgive as God's forgiven you. And then finally, we could look at another problem that Paul had in his life. A heartbreaker like Demas. I mean, Demas was part of Paul's ministry team. And the Bible says... He had loved the present world and he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I'm just telling you, if you disciple people long enough, if you're a Christian long enough and pour your life into other people, you're going to face some Demases. Anybody ever had a wayward son or daughter that turned their back on the faith and they walked away? They loved this present world. I'm sure that broke Paul's heart. I'm sure it broke the heart of his ministry team. But you know what they had to do? They had to forgive. They had to to understand that having been reconciled to God, God calls us to be reconciled to one another. And in that requires humility, it requires grace, it requires extending forgiveness. And that's why Paul ends his letter, notice the very end of verse 15. Notice, Notice how Paul summarizes the end. If we're going to be faithful co-laborers in gospel ministry, we're going to have to understand that there, there is a real deep fellowship that comes from our companionship. There's faithfulness that God requires each one of us to, but that he requires us to forgive, to forgive as God has forgiven you. And that's why the church needs the very last thing, the very last line, notice, of the epistle. What does Paul say? He says, what be with you? What? What? Grace. That's what we need. It's what our church needs. It's what you need. You need God's grace to not only be a recipient of it, but a person who can extend it to someone else. May God help us. May God help us to be a church like this. May God help us to be a, a place of faithful servants. Deep co-laborers in the gospel in a place that's quick to forgive. Because we're all sinners saved by grace. God's doing a work in our life and none of us will be perfect until the day we stand before Him, right? I wonder, who is it that God would lead you to this morning to extend grace to? Is it someone in your family? Is it someone in your extended family? Is it someone at your work? Is it someone here at our church? And I say that, God's Spirit brought their name to mind. Just like that. God's Spirit brought the name to mind. The question is, will you do it? Will you be a person who extends His grace this week in that situation and trust for Him to do the work? Father, we thank You and praise You and worship You this morning that You are worthy of everything. Lord, we recognize that Lord, we're just um, fellow laborers. We're, we're, Lord, in this together. And uh, God, what we need this morning is something that we can't do. 
but you can. And Lord, it's the message, it's the power of the gospel that transforms. It, it can reconcile relationships. God, it can, uh, it can overcome, Lord, strongholds of bitterness in our life. It can free us in ways that we need to be freed. God, it can unify a church. It can unify a family. And we, we, we believe that. But Lord, we're asking for your spirit to do that in ways that we can't. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be the kind of person you want us to be this week. Lord, may you get all the glory in our life for what you do. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Man, would you stand with me? Jessica's going to play this morning and give you an opportunity. What is this? This is an opportunity to respond to what God's done in your life this morning. And you can come and kneel up here, or you can kneel in your chair, you can get alone with God wherever you're at, but I invite you to respond to the Lord. Would you respond in prayer this morning to how God used the message in your life? Who is the person or the situation that God's calling you to extend His grace on? Will you pray over that this morning? You pray for God to give you the courage and the boldness and the words to extend His love, grace, and compassion through you. Opportunities are open, you respond, and how God's leading you this morning.